Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Up next, the quiet of a country farm is shattered by a fatal explosion. It blew Roberto in pieces. He caught on fire. There are thousands of bits of evidence and almost as many questions. They went out to a crime scene and they collected things that, quite frankly, didn't belong there at the scene. And one more thing is out of place. It's found on a sheet of paper that's blank, but still loaded with information. When you see it, it's like, oh my gosh, that is, that's what that is. That's what's happening. Calusa County, which soaks up the sun of California's Central Valley, is home to some of the richest, most productive farmland in North America. At one time, Calusa County was supposedly the wealthiest county in the United States. A lot of the the farms are big farms. They're several thousand acres, and they're passed on generation to generation. The Moors were one of these farming families. Their 1,800-acre ranch, where they grew mostly rice, had been in the family for decades. Another family, the Ayalas, first-generation immigrants from Mexico, worked side-by-side with the Moors in the day-to-day operations of the farm. It was a good life. The work for both the Moors and the Ayalas was hard but gratifying, and it paid well. On the afternoon of July 16, 2011, Fabian Ayala, who was seven years old at the time, accompanied his father, Roberto, while he checked one of the Moore family rice fields. We picked up our lunch before, picked up chicken, and he let me eat it on the ride there. Once we got there, all he had to do was shut off a pump. It was a typical day, a typical chore, but what happened next was anything but typical. There was a massive explosion. Once he switched the pump, everything just... Something's so loud, your ears are just echoing, like squeaking. A window shattered, and I look up, and he's just there on the ground. A shocked Fabian ran to his father, who was on fire and missing an arm. He tried to grab his father's cell phone, but the heat was too intense. 
he ran for help. I had no idea where I was going. I was just looking for help. Just someone, anyone. He had to run through mud that we call Calusa mud. It just cakes on your shoes. You, you can't get it off. He literally had to take his shoes off and was running barefoot. After running for two desperate miles, Fabian was finally able to get help. First responders found Roberto Ayala dead at the scene and still on fire. I was just trying to tell myself it was a dream. The whole time, the whole, um, the whole ride home, I tried to tell myself it was a dream, but never went away. At first, this looked like an accident. Roberto had burn holes in the soles of his feet and the bottoms of his boots, a telltale sign of electrocution. The electricity is going to take its quickest path to ground. And that would not be uncommon that if it enters his body, it actually would blow through the bottom of his feet, out his boots. But local detectives weren't convinced this was an accident. This blast was too big. The damage to the pole that the electrical box had been on was enormous. It had sheared it off down almost toward the ground. That is a very, very powerful explosion where it will send debris and items for several hundred, if not thousands of feet. As for Fabian, he was lucky to be alive. His father's truck acted as a shield. Those items of metal are traveling at thousands of feet per second, and your body's not going to stop it. His body would not have stopped any of those items. They kept asking me if that's really what happened. Everyone, they don't want to believe it. Much of this debris didn't appear to come from the electrical box, the water pump, or any of the equipment at the scene. And electrocutions generally don't result in explosions like this. I recall turning to the detective and saying, you have a homicide investigation. And his exact words were to me is, I hope you're wrong, because that's not what, that's not what anybody wanted to hear. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In the case of the blast that killed Roberto Ayala, some things became immediately apparent. We sent off parts of the recovered items from the explosive device and through the ATF labs, it was identified as a triple base smokeless powder, and there was also the presence of gasoline. The presence of gunpowder left no doubt someone killed Roberto with a bomb. There has to be some kind of personal connection because of the, the remoteness of where this device was placed. So somebody would have had to know Roberto to place this device and therefore kill Roberto and target him. 
the triple-based smokeless powder in this bomb is generally used for firearms or ordnance used by the military. It's always present in an IED or an improvised explosive device. It was a pipe bomb. It was a cylindrical piece of metal with screwed-in caps at each end. Tiny bits of fishing line were found in the debris and also what appeared to be a spring from a rat trap, something bomb techs had seen before. The technical term would be victim actuated, is what we called in the in the EOD or explosive bomb squad world, but a booby trap device. Whoever made this bomb knew what they were doing. It was very sophisticated. This was not just throw some explosives in a pipe and throw it in there or anything like that. Detectives now made a decision that would affect the rest of the investigation. As far as the public was concerned, there was no murder. Publicly, they were investigating a fatal industrial accident. The public is not informed about it. The manner in which this occurred or what we were finding for our evidence was not released to the public. The first question was, who would want to kill Roberto Ayala, a hardworking father of three? It was just like, why? They never had problems with anybody, and there was no one to think who did it, you know? There was, like, no one that... I thought hated him enough or he hated someone enough like where that was even to be thought about. As detectives started asking questions, they soon learned there was a lot of tension at the Moore family ranch. Well, anytime there's a family owned and operated business, there's uh, obviously going to be some backstories associated with them. And, and this was one uh, particular case where there was there was plenty. Two cousins who helped run the farm, Paul and Peter Moore, were not exactly friendly. The cousins, Paul and Peter, grew up together as young kids. They played together, they fished together, they duck hunted together, but they started parting as they got older. Suspicion soon fell squarely on Peter Moore. Peter had a reputation around town of being a little bit of a hothead. There were reports that Peter had had some kind of altercation with Roberto. He was a loudmouth. He was a hothead. He was angry. He had a big mouth. He threatened lots of people. A few months before Roberto's murder, family members said Peter even threatened to harm his own father. Peter was apparently so difficult that his cousin, Paul, told him he no longer stood to inherit any part of the family farm. Paul told him that his dad, Gus, had cut him out of the will and had put Roberto in in place of Pete, which meant Pete wasn't going to get any of the money. Mind you, this is a ranch worth about $18, 20000000 million back then. And that looked to everyone like a good reason for Peter to kill Roberto Ayala. I think the motive was ultimately would come down to money or lack thereof or fear of lack thereof. Years of tension within the Moore family had Peter Moore convinced he'd been cut out of his family's multi-million dollar farming business. Even worse, he thought he'd been removed in favor of someone who wasn't even family, longtime farm foreman Roberto Ayala. When they were looking into it, 
once they realized they had a homicide, was who would want Roberto dead? And Pete Moore is the first one that came to the forefront because Pete Moore had made threats against Roberto. His cousin, Paul, had stated to Calusa County Sheriff's Office that he believed that, that Peter would be responsible for this. Detectives got a search warrant for Peter's house and found what looked like a direct link to the bomb, a YouTube search showing how a rat trap could be used to trigger an improvised explosive device. This video was on Peter's son's computer and a lot of other people's as well. Worldwide, it had been viewed more than a million times. A rat trap spring device was even used for bomb tech training. In my time as a bomb tech, we would make devices for our partners to try to defeat. Oftentimes, I would use a rat trap in them. The family computers showed no other searches on bomb making, and Peter's financial records revealed no recent purchases for any of the materials used in the bomb. What we never found was anything that indicated that there were any kind of manufacturing of pipe bombs. All eyes were still on Peter, but no evidence tied him to Roberto's murder. Then, almost a month later, there was an unexpected development. The first letter that was sent was in a sealed envelope with more stamps than was necessary to mail it. We were able to track where it was mailed from, which happened to be Sacramento. The letter, marked the Ayala case, was sent to the Calusa County Sheriff. There was all the typical red flags that you look at when items of mail are, are sent that are suspicious. The thing that stood out the most was that there was no handwriting on them. It was little labels that you would make on a label maker. Whoever wrote the letter knew Roberto Ayala's death was no accident. I remember telling everybody there, whoever sent this to us either did this on their own or was involved in it. The letter was tested for DNA and fingerprints, but nothing was found. Since the text was in labels, handwriting analysis was impossible. Three days later, another letter arrived. It had the same excess postage, the same labels used for the text, but this time, the writer included a detailed drawing of the pipe bomb. Everything was precise, even down to the, to the threads on the cap were drawn on. The drawing matched up to what analysts already knew about the bomb, and also answered still open questions about how it was made. But why did this person contact investigators? They believed the writer couldn't resist bragging about his work. The bomber thinks that they can't catch him. They're proud of what they did in the sense that, look what I built. They want people to know that. It's the weirdest thing that I've ever experienced. Up to this point, the letter writer and presumed bomber had been meticulous. But with the second letter, it looked like he finally slipped up. Multiple forensic exams were, were done on the letters. One of the things that was found underneath one of the labels on, on one of the letters was, was a leg hair. Obviously, leg hairs are interesting to us because oftentimes uh, hairs can contain DNA. No DNA was recovered. However, another potential source of DNA was lifted from the back of the stamp. 
but investigators hoping for a breakthrough were soon dealt another setback. We got a call from our DNA examiner and he alerted us to the fact that within the profile itself, there was what he described as an anomaly. Peter Moore was not officially eliminated as a suspect in the bombing murder of Roberto Ayala. So when DNA was recovered from one of the letters sent by the bomber, it was tested against his DNA. It didn't match. At least, not exactly. The analyst said there were indications the DNA might have come from someone in the Moore family. All eyes now turn to Paul Moore. So Paul went from the guy who was trying to help the sheriff's office do the investigation to a suspect in our investigation. The DNA was so weak, it could exclude a suspect, but couldn't definitively identify one. But it was enough for a search warrant. Five months after the bombing, detectives searched Paul Moore's property. Even though they were looking for bomb-making materials, what caught their attention was a sheet of paper on a kitchen table, which was discovered by accident. And I like to tell people that the moon was aligned right with the stars and the sun was in the right position and the blinds were pulled just right. Detectives thought they might be looking at a piece of paper that had been directly under the paper on which the bomb diagram had been drawn. Analysts call this indented writing. So the indentations simply are impressed into the sheet or sheets below the document that has the actual ink or pencil or whatever type of writing on it. The friction created when two sheets of paper rub against each other as something is being written creates a latent electric charge on the indentations in the paper, a forensic device called the Electrostatic Detection Apparatus, or ESDA, allows analysts to visualize this indented writing. It's a magnetic material that will fill in the indentations so that you can actually visualize either the diagram in this particular case or any type of writing. We have an electrically charged corona wire which we will run over the top of the document, give it a charge, and then cascade small glass beads that have toner applied to them over the document. And the electrostatic process actually makes the toner on the beads adhere to the paper, especially in places where there are indentations. And the end product allows you to visualize all of those indentations that are deep enough to be visualized. The ESDA process revealed a perfectly clear image, and bomb techs, who were very familiar with the bomb diagram, recognized it right away. After we were able to visualize the indented copy of the diagram, it was a match to the diagram. They were able to literally pick up that drawing and compare it to the drawing that the Sheriff's Department had received. Of course, this did not prove that Paul Moore made the drawing or sent it to police, but evidence on his property did. Fishing line, 
chemically consistent with fishing line recovered from the bomb was found, as were parts from the same type of rat traps used to help detonate the bomb. A label maker consistent with the labels on the letters was found in the house. Ink on the letters matched ink in Paul's printer. Even the way the letters were written pointed to Paul. Paul and Peter would text each other back and forth. Peter never used abbreviations. He would spell out a word completely. Paul, on the other hand, used abbreviations all the time. There's abbreviations in both letters that were received, and so it all just seemed to fall together. And the final piece of evidence left no doubt who built the bomb. There was, I believe, a total of eight fingerprints that were picked from the indented drawing piece of paper that matched Paul Moore's. Paul's plan was apparently not only to kill Roberto Ayala, but to frame his cousin Peter as the bomber. He wanted to blame it on Pete and get Pete out of the picture, but it's kind of a chicken shit way to kill somebody. The evidence shows that Paul rigged the bomb on the irrigation pump, knowing Roberto would be the one to shut it off. Once Roberto flipped the switch, an electric current set off the bomb, killing him instantly, but creating thousands of pieces of evidence. Ironically, if Paul had never sent the bomb diagram, he might have gotten away with murder. But he couldn't resist bragging about what he'd done. However, he didn't realize that he'd left a nearly invisible copy of the bomb diagram underneath the copy he'd sent to investigators. That sealed his fate. If it wasn't for science, we wouldn't have known what had happened. We would all have been have left like with no leads. No one had have known nothing. We would have known what really happened. Years of tension, competition, and downright greed resulted in the murder of an innocent man. In 2013, Paul Moore was found guilty of killing Roberto Ayala and was sentenced to life in prison, all on the strength of evidence he made available to investigators. If it wasn't for the role of forensics, Paul Moore would not be in prison. He wouldn't be convicted. I didn't have enough if I didn't have the forensics, not even remotely close. I wouldn't even file the case. Were it not for forensics, I think it would have been very difficult to prove that this incident was as a result of a human-placed bomb. Were it not for forensics, I think you would have a murderer that still was not in custody. Mm -hmm.